what's up and welcome to another episode of black in the maritimes i'm fidel i'm hillary and i'm clinton and we have a special guest today uh second time on the show but today he has uh, an amazing book uh which i read which is called where beauty survive an africadian memoir we have uh professor george elliott clark how you doing professor Oh, great to be here. Happy Thanksgiving to you and Clinton and Hillary. Thank happy, you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy so, Thanksgiving. So we're going to talk about the book because we talked about your life the last time. Uh, the first question that I have is why did you decide to write a memoir now? Well, Fidel, there are two answers to that question. I'll start with the irreverent one first. They gave me a contract. there's an advance there's money attached so it's like okay i'm gonna write a memoir now so so that's uh the the first reason why i might never have, have attempted it if, if i hadn't had that contract there on the other hand once i got started i realized it did have a story that, that there was something here that was important and more than just me uh, but the, the whole idea of, of Black community in the Maritimes, in Nova Scotia specifically, and how is it that a poet and a scholar and an academic comes out of that community, uh, both in terms of rural Nova Scotia, because my mom's family was from uh, Hans County, Three Mile Plains, and then my father's family is from Halifax. So I've got those dual influences of the city and the country, um, and and then two parents who were uh, very uh, smart uh, and very gifted and very interested in seeing myself and my two brothers survive uh, the racism and the classism that was all about keeping us immobilized, keeping us frozen in a lower class position. Not to say there's anything wrong with being a worker or being working class. There isn't. It's perfectly fine uh, and great. Any job is a good job. On the other hand, uh, they realized, uh, of course, given their own experiences growing up, that that was the fate society had carved out for us, that we were supposed to be uh, illiterate or near illiterate, undereducated, unskilled, cheap labor to be exploited by uh, white capitalist society. That's what the society had in store for us. That's what society still has in store for us. But my parents did their very best, along with other members of of our community, to try to make sure that we could escape that downward trajectory uh, and have a a chance to have have better lives and and to even be involved in the life of the mind. So I'm speaking a long time, saying something that's actually very short to say, which is this book is partly about how the community tried to organize itself to make it possible for some of us younger members of the community to achieve a decent education in the face of a racist society that did not want us to succeed, that deliberately uh, had it in mind for us to fail, in quotation marks, and remain stuck in, in a negative, relatively negative position. Now, how long did it take you to write this? Because it's a, it's a very extensive memoir, and and it's very extensive. I can definitely say that. And you have one of the greatest memories because you you, you <laughs> pick point things from your childhood, from your teenage years, from your adult. Like 
like as a you you point things of a child like you you put your mind as a of, as a child and you put yourself in the perspective as a child which was you uh so i mean there's a lot of memories how how long did it take you to 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 go through all of this well uh as is the case with with many you know longer books of of this sort uh prose books it's it's a uh, many years now i was given the contract to write this book in 2015 but I didn't get around to even starting it until 2017. And I wrote a first draft that summer. And when I sent it into the publisher, they said, no, this is not what we had in mind. And, and uh, sent me back to the drawing board, so to speak, by saying that instead of me trying to write about my whole life from 1960 to the 20-teens, that I should focus on, on childhood, boyhood, young manhood and cover the years zero to 20. And once I had that directive, it was easier than to just focus on on those boyhood uh, moments and and uh, early manhood, age eighteen to twenty. You know, and there, of course, as you know, there are moments in the memoir where I speak about you know myself now or or being older, being more mature, and and so on. But for the most part, I, I stuck pretty clearly to to those first twenty years. But to answer your question, uh, you know, I, I started that second draft in, in 2018. Uh, and then, you know, I wrote a little bit. I wrote, a, I wrote a few things and then COVID hit. And COVID had a silver lining. The silver lining was uh, I was on sabbatical anyway. I wasn't teaching last year, 2020, 2021. So I realized that this was the moment where since I didn't have to teach, I could focus on getting the memoir done. And that's what I did. So really it was summer 2020 to spring 2021 to get the last and actually the greatest chunk of it done uh, was at that point. Oh, well, was it, I mean, I I did a hybrid. I, I did the audiobook and I did the, the textbook. I, I did it back and forth and back and forth. And one thing that I notice uh, is that the the introduction, it's uh, in the audio, it's very emotional for you because uh, you dedicate it uh, to your parents and uh, you talk very emotional about what was the wife or conjugate of your father uh, that you dedicated that. And, and uh, when I heard it, if you read it, you don't feel the emotion. But once you hear the audiobook, you you can sense the emotion that you put on that. Uh, I, I wanted to talk to you, like, what was the, and I think Hillary's going to follow up on that after. Once you wrote that book, all those emotions came out as, because a lot of them are felt on the audio version. Like, once you were writing it, did all of that came out as well? Yes, yes, Fidel, because of the fact that, um, as you know, I'm critical of my, of my parents, as my daughter may be critical of me, uh, and rightfully so, I got to say that. And also at the same time, um, I have come to understand, I think, I hope better, my parents and their decisions and choices and practices. And at the same time, I hope my daughter will also be able to see me, uh, whatever kind of critique she may have now, that she will come to see me uh, in a more understanding and empathetic way. Uh, I think that's just the way things are between generations and so on, because each generation has its own way of looking at the world. No matter what kind of influence there is from parents and grandparents and so on, 
each of us, as we begin our lives, especially moving into our early adulthood, often find ourselves reacting against uh, uh, the dictates or teachings of parents until such time as we are a little bit older and we're able to see, well, okay, now I understand why they were saying the things they were saying. Uh, and, you know, that's a typical this human dilemma. Uh, it's too bad that we can't always see eye to eye from generation to generation, that we need to have that time passage in between for the younger to start to understand the older a bit, a bit more. So that's a long way of saying that, like many children, uh, as much as I loved and, and, and truly valued my parents, I didn't understand a lot of ways that they behaved or why they behaved the way they did. And of course, questioned it and was critical of it, and rightly so. Um, but at the same time, in remembering them, and those two good people are now deceased, my mom in 2000, my dad in 2005, um, I've had occasion to think about them every single day, every single day. Um, to remember them in very positive ways every single day and to miss them and to wish I had an opportunity to speak with them one-on-one or or both of them together and and just go over things and try to understand even better why they made the choices they made, decisions they made. Um, And and so there is a lot of emotion in that uh, because ultimately, despite my criticism which again, my daughter could direct it to me towards me uh, properly and correctly. So um, there's a lot of love there, and it has not gone away. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I believe that I appreciate them more. Unfortunately, I appreciate them ever more now than I did while they were living. And that is also, I think, a very common thing to have to have happen between parents and children. Uh, so I thank God that I have accrued just enough wisdom out of the errors of my ways to begin to appreciate them better and to understand their ways of trying to uh, survive as a man and woman in a racist and sexist uh, and classist and elitist society that wasn't really willing to make room for them in any way, shape or form. Now, Hillary, you have a question about that, uh, so you can go for there. I do. I do. Um, I r- finished the book in time for this interview. Very, It was very good. Um, I What struck me, so my questions are in line with the way the text goes. I wrote them as they came up. And what struck me at the jump, you did just touch on a little bit that the criticism of your parents, but to me, it read very much as humanizing them in such a way that someone mature looking back on what their parents has gone through the conditions of their upbringing would be able to do. And I was wondering if the point of that was to humanize your parents and explain your own thought process now as a parent writing that book, those criticisms and fleshing that out, or if it was almost as a way to humanize these black adults raising black kids for a white readership, because I found myself really uh, like that resonated with me in a very big way. Wow. Uh, That's a great question, Hillary. It is. It's a, it's amazing. Um, And, and uh, you know, I think that like many kids, maybe many black kids, especially, uh, and, and, you know, just to talk about my own family, 
my father was a very strict disciplinarian. Uh, and he believed, he strongly believed in you could not spare the rod or else you would spoil the child. So my brothers and I and my mom uh, felt the rod more than once, unfortunately, in our household. And I can say that as a child, it made me fearful. Uh, it made me afraid. It, it made me, uh, uh, it made it harder for me to uh, love my father. Um, because he just seemed to be so remote and stern, like some kind of tyrant uh, uh, in our castle, uh, so to speak, our home being the man's home, being his castle and all that. And he was very patriarchal and therefore sexist. And he didn't want our mom to be able to drive. He didn't want her to work outside the home. Uh, he wanted to be the boss in every way, shape and form. And he was for the first part of, of my childhood. And, and uh, he was very much a kind of 1950s father knows best figure. And, and that graded on all of us, my brothers and I. I shouldn't try to speak for them. I'll speak for myself. So for me, it, it, it was uh, uh, difficult. I loved him and I definitely respected him. Uh, and so on the other time, on the other hand, I feared him. And I remember that, and it's not my imagination, that my brothers and I and my mom would be having fun, we'd be playing, we'd be, you know, uh, licking the batter off of uh, off of the artists uh, and so on, and doing little art projects at home. Then we'd hear his step. We'd hear his step coming up the front steps, and we all had to be like, quiet, no, no sound until we could figure out whether he was in a good mood or a bad mood. And that was hard to do because if he was in a, he could be in a good mood coming in the door, but if he saw anything that seemed wrong or just like we were too happy, that was another problem. If we were like too happy and too happy to lucky, then he, he could get mad at us for that, for that. So it was a, it was a tripwire kind of situation that we had and it made us all uh, walk on eggshells, be on tenterhooks. At least for me, I felt that way. And this is a long answer to your very good question, but what I've come to understand since in writing this memoir is trying to understand why he was like that. And I don't, and I, in the memoir, I say the same thing. I don't say any of this to try to, to make him look better or, or anything like that. I mean, he was the way he was, and anybody who wants to be critical can be critical. But we need to understand that his generation of Black men, and he was only like three generations out, born outside of slavery. I mean, people forget about that. He was the grandson. He was the grandson of the son of former slaves. His maternal grandfather was born in Virginia in 1874, whose parents had been slaves until 1865. So my father was, was literally four generations outside of slavery. I'm five. I'm the fifth generation outside of slavery. Right. And so it was a living memory. It was it was close to him in, in ways that, that it wasn't even close for me, but it was for him that we had that history right there. And so for his generation of black men to be able to have their own homes, to be able to have their wives at home, to be able to have their children asleep in the beds in their own bedrooms under their roofs. This was tremendous progress. Because not too long before then, black women have to go work in a white family's home as a maid or a nanny or a domestic, possibly be subject to sexual harassment, if not actual physical attack. 
by the husband, the father, the brother, the nephew, the uncle, the son, and what have you. And those things did happen. Uh, or the kids would be subject to some other adult supervision, which could be very negative. All right. So uh, most of the black men on my street, Manor Street in Halifax, 1960s, they all worked for the railway. They weren't all porters. My dad was not a porter. He just worked at the railway station and he had a humble job at the railway station. But all those men, like next door neighbors, guy across the street, guy down the street, uh, they all had the same setup. They had a house. They had a car. Their wives were at home. Their kids were in their home. And and looking back at that situation now for these men and their generations coming out of slavery, that that for them even though we could feel it as being oppressive, and it was. I don't deny that was an oppressive social system. But for them, they saw it as being positive because they were they were fulfilling a certain role model of parenthood and fatherhood, which is something that we still debate in the Black community. What is the proper role of fathers? Is it okay to have single-parent families? Is it Should, the, should both parents be there in the household and, and so on? These guys made the choice in the 1950s and 1960s that, yeah, they were supposed to be stay-at-home fathers with their wives at home as well, being the caretakers of their children, being the homemakers and so on. Well, they brought in the bacon, brought in the bread, brought in the salary. And as a boy, I thought salary was C-E-L-E-R-Y. I thought it was a vegetable that my father was getting for work, right? Um, And for them, that was a progressive, progressive model given the fact that during slavery, and I know people don't want to be reminded of this, but I will remind people of this. During slavery, you could not keep your spouse for yourself. You could not be guaranteed that your wife or your husband was going to be at home. You could not be guaranteed that your kids were going to be there for you at your home. So the fact that these men were able to set up households that were theirs, that they bought and paid for through their hard work, through their labor, and they had their wives at home, safe from white men's, attacks on them or potential attempted seductions of them and so on. And then they have their kids at home under their authority and not some white person's authority. That was extremely progressive for them, even though I can say clearly as an intellectual, as a scholar, as a historian, it was it was an oppressive structure. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do in the memoir is, is to explain, like, this is why they were they were the way they were. This is why they were so stern and so and so big on discipline was because they felt that they had to maintain the strict, strict control over their families in order to protect what they were trying to build up uh, without realizing that they were also subjecting uh, their wives to tyranny and their children to potential tyranny. But that's what they thought they had to do in order to have uh, four walls and a roof. Uh, food on the table, clothes on everybody's back, and the respect and the respect of of uh, others in the black community, and also to be able to hold their heads up high walking down the street to go to their jobs or come back from their jobs. So that's how I try to explain my father's behavior uh, and why he was the way he was. And there's one other thing too, and we often talk about these days in in the days of Black Lives Matter. We talk about the talk. The talk that fathers and mothers give their sons, especially their daughters, too, about how to comport yourself so you do not attract negative attention from the police and so on. And I think that those men 
in my community, in my neighborhood, when I was coming up in the 60s and 70s, also felt that they had to be strict, especially with boys, um, in order to protect us so that we would not go against authority and end up being beaten, falsely arrested, uh, convicted, have a criminal record, go to prison, or, or worse, get shot, get killed. And that and that it was better for them to beat us uh, into what they considered to be politeness rather than let us run the risk of being insolent or insubordinate uh, to white authority and then end up uh, grievously hurt or with a criminal record or worse, dead in some fracas with the police. Now, I want to talk to you about like Technically, this is this is your life. Well, not technically. That that was your life in within that time. And there is beauty in the writing. There's definitely a lot of beauty, especially when you talk about your mother and your grandparents from your mother's side. Uh, it's uh, it's quite colorful and beautiful what you what you say, uh, and it and it actually says different shades of blackness like the countryside of the black people and the city side of black people uh and things like that uh once you wrote that did you meant to portray it that beautiful or is it something that in your mind like how did you how did that progress to the writing because it's it's a very beautiful how you describe the countryside uh once you were a kid oh fidel uh This is one of the great things about about um, uh, growing up black in the Maritimes is is that yes, of course, there's the racism, there's the classism, there's the sexism, there's homophobia, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All these things that impinge on us and 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 uh, and try to oppress us and direct our behavior. But the thing that is so wonderful that I think makes the Black Maritimes Africadia different is that. We also had so much beauty around. You know, yes, there was poverty, but then people had gardens. Yes, the, there there was oppression, but people had cows and chickens and hogs and hosses. People had boats. They'd go Africa. People go on Bedford Basin and fish from their own boats or have the waterside baptisms and so on. And everybody's shimmering, coming out of the water in the sunlight, or they have people singing under the under the moon or or doing their banjos and doing the guitars and, and playing spoons on their on their thighs and singing uh, for any given reason, any time to enjoy their molasses, their rum, their green tomato chow chow, graves, green tomato chow chow, right? Um, and, and of course the, the games and so on. So and the picnics, community picnics, the church picnics and so on, not to mention the church services. So as much as there was so much pain available, easily present, sickness, poverty, illiteracy, uh, bad teachers, uh, people getting, getting roughed up by police or abused in other ways and so on. There was also just so much beauty there, present in the landscape itself, present in the seascape, right? And we were lucky in a sense. I, I'm glad I had I had access to the country as well as to the city. I was so happy because in the country, 
I, I had, I had, of course, all that fresh air, but there was also the pear trees, the hazelnuts, the blackberries, raspberries, apples, pears, crab apples, um, and and uh, and just running up and down the roads, the gravel roads as they as they were back then, or dirt roads even later on paved. The fact that my grandmother, my grandparents had ex- what seemed to me extensive fields in back of their home where you could run, you could play in the grass, you could hide in the grass, the grass was so high, or you could hide in it. So it was easy to play games and hide and go seek and all the rest of it. So as a boy, no matter what the statisticians and economists would have said about my family, I felt rich. I felt immensely rich because, again, no matter how little we may have had in the eyes of the bigger world, I had the country. I had, you know, it wasn't a cottage, but my grandmother's my grandparents' place was basically a cottage. You know, we could go there and 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 just you know believe that that we were just so rich because we had that access there. And then, of course, in the city, you know, a couple of quarters, you go to movies all day, <laughs> uh, get all the popcorn, all the twizzles, all the licorice, and and so on. And of course, you have the games and the playgrounds, and and so so I just I just felt that that uh, yeah, we did have we did have beauty. And no matter how poor people were, you know, every almost everybody was trying to grow flowers. Almost everybody was trying to have a little vegetable garden somewhere, right, to offset costs of this and that and the other thing. And people shared. I don't want to sound like it was utopia because it wasn't because we had all kinds of issues and all kinds of pressures, um, you know, pressing us down. At the same time, people found ways to 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 have their beauty whether it was making their own music, which is very important to us because we did, we didn't know, we couldn't necessarily read music or know very much about it, but uh, neighborhood guys, no problem. We'd get together, we'd bang on some garbage can lids uh, with pieces of wood. We'd make our own little like kind of xylophones and and uh, and we would put up a racket that we thought was beautiful. I'm sure that we thought we were, oh yeah, we are making some wonderful music here. <laughs> And and uh, and of course, when we were older, uh, my brother Bright and I would go and try to serenade some of the neighborhood girls under their under their windows until either their parents or our parents would come and say, "Enough is enough. Got to get inside now." And nobody taught us to do that. We just came to that spontaneously. I, you know, we didn't know about do what per se. We'd heard it on the radio, but we didn't know that that's how it started with people going crooning on street corners. It just came to us naturally that that's something we should do. Uh, in hopes that we would, you know, get some approval by one of these, uh, one of our classmates might smile upon us maybe the next day. So, so yeah, there were not to mention sports and boxing and all the rest of it, especially because everybody took that boxing was a way of, of understanding our superiority. Right? Uh, in terms of, of, you know, and everybody, I mean, my father was a kind of was a sort of a conservative guy and and sort of go along get along, but even he, when the when a black boxer was was fighting for a championship, even he was like, "Go get him!" <laughs> and so and everybody would congregate, everybody would gather around the old black and white TV sets to watch one of these one of these uh, boxing matches. And there was a lot of community solidarity in that, right? Uh, so, uh, so we had ways of of feeling that that we had elements of beauty that 
that were particular to us, that, that were part of our community and nobody else necessarily would understand. Yeah, I, I definitely agree on that. I think some people wouldn't understand it unless unless they see it or or they feel it. Hillary, you, you had a question? No, I'll let Clinton go first. I oh, already asked you. one. <laughs> thank you so much. Hey, George. Um, by the way, my middle name is George. Uh, great name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Clinton. Thank you so much for writing the book. And um, yeah, like Fidel was saying, so descriptive. I'm a very visual person and I really saw that part of Nova Scotia in reading the book. Um, and I'll just, your discussion about it being about yourself and also being about the community that you grew up in uh, is so relevant. Full disclosure, I did get the book a little bit after everyone else. I'm one third through it, but I'm enjoying it so much. And it's just bringing a certain kind of joy to my life because I'm from Toronto, uh, where you live now. And, you know, I grew up around a lot of Black people from the Caribbean. And when I came out here, I didn't really understand the culture of the Black people from here and where they were from. And in fact, um, one of my daughter's mothers is from not too far from where you grew up. She's from Kenville. Oh. And um, just reading through even the first third of the book, it makes me feel like I understand her a lot better and the story she's told me about her mother uh, and even my own daughter, uh, because they go out there quite frequently and there's just certain things in the stories about words and way people talk and communities and the way they react to events and describe things that really brought a bunch of joy to my life and makes made me really want to go out there. Um, my question to you is your, that story was set in, I guess, between the 60s to about the 80s. Is that is that correct? Yes. How much different is, I know buildings change and technology changes and stuff like that, but how much different is the culture there now uh, or the last time you were there in like the 2020s compared to the the story, I'm the, the visualization I, I got from reading through the book? Um, Clinton, are the, pe <laughs> uh, the question is very good. And, and uh, I'll just say, keeping in mind, I haven't lived there for a long time, not lived in Nova Scotia since 1987. And, and as you've noticed, uh, noted, things change, buildings change, streets change, a lot of things change. Um, and so I can't pretend to be an expert on the way people may live right now in Nova Scotia. But here's what I am able to say. There are fewer Black communities now because there's been so much out-migration to Halifax as well as to Toronto, Montreal, uh, Calgary, other parts of, of Canada, uh, then also to the U.S. Um, and and uh, but there's also been a lot of gentrification. So so communities that were seen by the larger white society as being poor and dangerous, nobody wants to be there. Now all that land is considered to be valuable, and real realtors, the real estate developers are moving in on a lot of those black communities, and and basically cajoling people or buying people out so that they will leave and and then white folks move in which is just the way things are in a capitalist society on the other hand a lot a lot of those communities have have deep roots in history and which is which is now being corroded uh by the real estate pressures especially given the boom that's happened during covid right um 
And so in that sense, uh, for that reason, I feel that the actual Black presence in Nova Scotia has been diminished uh, and the cultural presence has been diminished uh, for that reason. So when I was a boy, uh, uh, 50 years ago, 50 plus years ago, uh, there was much more of a vibrant sense of continuous communities all over mainland Nova Scotia, as well as the West Indian descended community in Glace Bay and Sydney, Cape Breton. Uh, now um, our communities are far, for the most part, far somewhat smaller, if not much smaller, with the exception of communities like North Preston, East Preston and Cherrybrook, where they've been able to maintain much more of a solid core of Black neighborhood uh, and, and simply Black community. But in other places, it's been more difficult to, to maintain that sense of cohesion and togetherness and landedness and of having been in the same place for a couple of centuries, much harder. So on one hand, I think that the spirit or sense of Black community has become more diffused, a little, a little less solidly evident in Nova Scotia. On the other hand, since I was just there in August 2021 for a couple of weeks, I can still say that the people themselves, the Black people who are still there, the old Black land community, uh, there is still a great sense of solidarity, a great sense of at-homeness, a great sense of belonging, a great sense of, of wanting to struggle to protect and preserve what we have and to help each other. Uh, and it's a beautiful sense. One of the great things about coming from Black Nova Scotia is that, again, no matter how much racism there is in the larger society, and it's still there, it's still a lot there, absolutely, we have a sense of solidarity. We have a sense of togetherness and that we will fight back and we will talk back and we will protest and we will march and, and we will demand equality and we will demand a proper treatment. So when the recently elected government, Tory government of Nova Scotia announced uh, their cabinet and there were no black people in it, and that even the minister of African Nova Scotian affairs was white, uh, the people didn't hesitate to run in front of the TV cameras and say this was unacceptable, that this was racism, uh, it was, and it could not continue in 2021. Uh, it was not going to be allowed, and that anybody who thought they didn't notice or wouldn't notice or couldn't notice was sadly ill-informed that the people did notice. Uh, and also the firing of, of senior Black officials in the Department of Health uh, was also a cause for concern for the community. And again, came up for public protest immediately. Um, and with everybody understanding what was at stake and, and the solidarity of the community uh, is something that feels really good. I love when I can go back to Nova Scotia and be with the folks, be with the people, because you, you're just, there's an embrace. Uh, there's a sense of welcome and a sense of mutual understanding uh, about our struggle and, and just being at home, being uh, able to relax together and party together and have that communal solidarity. So uh, the question is great. And I keep in mind the fact I don't live there uh, now and I don't get back as much as I used to. But I still feel that even though uh, population centers have diminished or maybe have become more concentrated, such as in Halifax and Halifax County, that there's still a strong sense of solidarity amongst the uh, 25 to 30,000 African Nova Scotians or Africadians that are still there. 
still roughly 2% of the population of the whole of the whole province. Thank you so much for that answer. Well, yeah, they're still there as the population might be diminishing. I, I feel like her family line is part of that original strong, bold uh, sense of solidarity. And uh, I'm not going to use the word sass. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel I, I really felt like I, I really felt that coming through in the story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Clint. Hillary, go ahead. Um, I want to just because Clinton got to have his moment of speaking to the joy in the book. I will say I also felt a distinct joy knowing that my mother was born in 1951. And so I now have a ton of questions because I'd like to compare white Memram Cook, New Brunswick to your experience, because I've heard the similar things around fights and hockey night and the country and Western that my mother claims to hate as an Acadian, but will get down to with the right amount of drinks. And so (laughs) I do have a series of questions lined up. Thanks to to your book. Um, And I still have questions for you. I am cognizant of the time, but I will pick my best ones. Um, We've had several guests on the show who have discussed um, the different mediums that they work with and how it has helped them work through various traumas, including the traumas specific to racism. Um, I was wondering if that writing this book and of, of course your, your entire <laughs> plethora of other works, um, what type of like relief or understanding or peace does it bring you to be able to work through you know, intergenerational trauma, racism, all of these things by writing something like an autobiography? Hillary, that's a a great question. And I'm not surprised to know that your mom is secretly a lover of country and Western music. I was surprised to find out that my mom was a secret lover of country and Western music, uh, much to my surprise and originally chagrined. When I was 17, 18, I couldn't believe it. What? You like that music? How could you? And I then, still chagrin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then later on, when I'm a social worker and I'm working in Annapolis Valley Black communities, and everybody was into country western. It, it was it was so amazing. They would start off, my recollection was in a lot of those places, on Saturday night, they would start off playing the latest rap and disco and funk and whatnot. Um and and then somewhere around midnight, uh, the records would get put away and then somebody would bring out a guitar and a fiddle or something. And then they would start doing the Hank Snow and the George Jones and the and the Patsy Cline and so on. And I got into it because it was it was music that just came right from the heart. Right. And 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 and, you know, the hands go up in the air, the tears come down the face and the tears end up in somebody's drink of beer or rum. <laughs> And there's this like beautiful catharsis out of those moments, right? My so, mom always described it as like your your wife left you and your dog died and you lost your house music, but then would be crying to like Travis Tritt and Tammy Wynette. And I'm like, who are you? What oh, is yeah. this identity crisis in <laughs> you? How am I supposed to know who I am? Oh my golly. Look, uh, John Conley, Rose Colored Glasses is one of those songs that comes back to me right now. It's like, you know, I can't listen to that without getting all uh, weepy and, and so on. Very hard. And I've got a, I've got a, or had, sorry to say, a great aunt who just passed away. Uh, actually, 2019. I think she passed away in 2019. Yeah, and uh, Mousy. Um, uh, and and uh, she had her own country western bands. She was a black woman from Three Mile Plains, Hans County. 
and she had all the spangled shirts and the and all the glitz and so on the satin shirts and oh yeah she could sing and play and and oh i can't listen to her without bursting into tears because she's got the plangency and the poignancy in her in her voice um so yeah uh so uh what can what, how can i answer this question Ex- except to say that uh these expressions, these cultural expressions are part of the, the multicultural uh, configuration of our communities because our communities uh, in the Maritimes were always Black, but then also part Indigenous. Uh, black, part Indigenous, and also part European uh, because there were the Acadians and sometimes intermarried, intermingled. Uh, along with indigenous people, Mi'kmaq people, Mi'kmaq people. And there were also uh, white people who found being around black people far more comforting than they felt being around their own kind, in quotation marks. And so, and this is what I talked about as well early in the memoir, is that growing up, going to Hans County, going to the Windsor Three Mile Plains, um, I saw people of every complexion who were actually related to me. Uh, there are people who look white. My own mother looked white, for crying out loud. But then there are people who look tan. And people I describe as looking like the color of orange pineapple ice cream. Because that's just the way they looked at They looked to me as a boy, right? Uh, and copper and mahogany and ebony. Right? All, all the shades that you can't imagine were there. And, everybody, and no one seemed to really care very much about it. It wasn't until I was a teenager and really came under the pressure of of class and race and 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 sex uh in terms in terms of of dating and romance and so on that all of a sudden it became it became an issue that I was a young black man but before then I grew up in in a community that was fairly open uh to people of all backgrounds and and we're all kinds of cultures could be enjoyed. Now I'm thinking about the sauerkraut from the German side of Nova Scotia, the rappy pie from the Acadian side of Nova Scotia. Of course, the scotch and the bagpipes of, of Cape Breton, especially. Still, if I hear if I hear bagpipes now in Toronto, it almost always brings tears to my eyes because I just think Nova Scotia, I think of home, right? And and the fiddle music and, and all the rest of it. So uh, uh, I, I, I could not eschew any of that. I could not turn away from any of that because all of that was also definitions of, of what it meant to be human, what it meant to be humane, what it meant to enjoy your life um, as without, without discriminating, uh, without feeling you had to discriminate against others in order to, in order to have a way forward for yourself. Um, so I'm, I'm extremely uh, fortunate, I felt, in writing a memoir and bringing all that back to mind about, about how much togetherness there was, at least amongst working class or poor people or people from military backgrounds who were all living together and, and often partying together. Uh, and and sometimes forming families together, and that that was another part of of being Africadian, being uh, Black Nova Scotian, was that we couldn't really afford to draw any serious lines or barriers between ourselves and others. Otherwise, you'd be discriminating discriminating against 
people in your own family, people who were your own blood. So, uh, yeah, uh, Hillary, I got to admit, I, I'm not sure I answered your question. So if you want to, you know, have a I do have I have a follow up that that is you did segue to wonderfully um, because in that same vein of always talking about how our different mediums help our trauma, especially on this podcast, we always start with that origin story of realizing your own race and realizing the racism around you. Um, And I was just wondering more so in your own opinion, do you think that there is a reason that most black artists author in your case, start with, that origin story it's never I find it's never like I was born in this place but even even me and telling my own story it's the first time I was called the n-word it's sort of where I always begin my journey into the person that I am now and so I wonder if for you when you describe that moment where those those boys called you the n-word and you just (laughs) said it right back um if you I'm just wondering why do you why you think that, you know, black people always start there as opposed to before that moment, why it's so pivotal to us. Is it the trauma or is it that we don't think people will understand or what your opinion is? Well, Hillary, again, that's a great question. And I think that maybe the reason why is because those moments, those origin moments, as you describe them, are moments that tell us that despite uh, whatever we have thought up to that point, we are actually not part of the society. That, that we are considered marginal outsiders, second best interlopers, second rate, uh, who are not really uh, Nova Scotian, Canadian, uh, or, or even human beings, for that matter. Uh, and that from that point onward, we spend the rest of our lives trying to say, well, yes, we are. Or we go the other way and say, well, I don't want to be part of your, of your society. I'm going to be against your society. I'm going to become uh, a criminal. I'm going to become a hoodlum. I'm going to become a gangster. Because I have, I have, there's no place in your society for me. You don't want me in your society. And besides, I don't want to be in your society. I want to be an outsider. So those origin moments are those moments when you suddenly realize that despite the love and care and protection of our own family or maybe of the larger black community around us, that outside in the world beyond our own uh, community, uh, neighborhood uh, precincts, so to speak, we are considered to be interlopers and aliens so that people can basically stop us and demand our identification, stop us and and ask us, oh, where are you from? Uh, The implication of those questions being that we do not belong here simply because of the fact that we are black people. Uh, and it's not just a matter of skin color. Uh, and it also, it irks me when people say, oh, it's because of the color of my skin. No, it's because of the history that we carry. It's not the color of our skin. It's the history that we carry, which is represented in our, in our physiognomy, in our faces, in our, in our comportment, in our bearing. And the fact that many white people feel guilty uh, about slavery, whether or not they had any family members involved with that. Uh, Also, there are other white people who feel that we actually do not belong here. Uh, Since slavery is over and we don't need to have you present as slaves anymore, you should go back to Africa and let us just have Canada be a white man's country, country for white people only. And your presence here upsets our 
upsets our interpretation of of the nationality of being Canadian, that it's all about being white, and especially being from Britain or, or from France. And anybody else who's here is here by our good graces. We let them be, come in, we let them be here. Uh, but we prefer the Europeans, prefer white people to black and brown, yellow, and even the red people, the indigenous people. We don't want them to be here either. And it's actually, as Thomas King said, you're kind of inconvenient that they were here first. It's, a, it's the inconvenient Indian, to, uh, to quote Thomas King. Uh, so so uh, uh, that's what I think those origin stories are about, is our own, even as children, suddenly realizing that we do not belong or that people believe we do not belong here. Uh, I'm reminded of Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, the author of The Souls of Black Folk, a profound book published in 1903. And he begins um, that scientific study, more or less sociological study of what blackness means in the early 20th century in the United States by talking about his own origin story. And he, excuse me, went to an integrated school in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And, uh, and was treated well by the other kids. And then one day, it was some kind of like Valentine Day situation or dance or something like that. And, and all the kids are like six, seven years old, right? So the young William uh, Edward Burkhart Du Bois uh, goes to a classmate, uh, uh, a white girl classmate, and, and asks uh, her to accept his Valentine or his dance card or what have you. And he says, and I remember the phrase uh, perfectly, she says, or he says about her that she refused his card peremptorily. So in other words, he didn't even really get a chance to ask her to accompany him to this dance or this party or what have you, because she preempted him and refused him in a preemptive way, peremptorily refused him. And from that moment on, the veil, he says, the veil came over me. And all of a sudden, I've got the double consciousness. I know I'm an American, but I also know I'm not an American. I'm a Negro. I'm not a, I'm not a real American. And so I see everything in a double, double-sided double way. And I think that's true for all of us who go through those moments of sudden self-recognition and the shock of, of understanding that you are not acceptable, that you are, sub are subject to suspicion and derision and, and relegation to some profane uh, category of, 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 uh, of the invisible uh, or the should be invisible, as in The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Uh, and, and that if you are going to remain part of the society, be uh, able to accept and expect that you will be given the worst of the worst, uh, the least of the least. Now, uh, I just, you know, one thing that you said, it's about uh, how white people don't actually uh, want us to be here. And there's a part in your book that uh, your mom was uh, paying service to a white person that were poorer than you were. Uh, and you were getting those service and the grandmother couldn't fatten the, the, the she was getting hired by a black person. Like, Like yeah, and, and that makes that 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 makes it pretty pretty clear. Uh, you also talk about the education system uh, in your one. Then you said that you were again. There were other people that were not black. They were just poor. Uh, they just happened to be white, but the, the black ones uh, kind of were face and reality. Now, I, I'll ask you this: Do you think now 
uh, that you're a professor, do you think the education system is still uh, putting black people like in a, to fail? Like you said, you, you, you put, uh, you, you said in your book that most of the school that you were into, they were setting up people of color to fail. Uh, now that you're a professor, do you think that's the reality as well? Fidel, um, I, I'd like to think that, that things have changed very much for the better, but I do not believe that they have. Uh, maybe someone can show me stats that would prove that my hunch is wrong, but I still think that the society is a hierarchical society, always has been. Canada has always been a hierarchical society because it's a monarchy, and this society has always been organized along the lines that some people should be higher uh, than others. Some people should be lower than others. And one of the ways they've, they've tried to, to figure that out is through race, as well as through ethnicity, as well as through language, as well as through religion. And I may have said this before, so forgive me if I'm saying it again, but in my view, the way Canada is structured, the more you look and sound like the monarch. So if you're white, you have a British accent, you have a lot of money, Uh, and you're Anglican or Protestant in religion, uh, then you will have high status in Canada. The further you are away from the monarch in color, in accent, in language, in religion, in class, uh, the less status you have. Uh, and it's a very easy way to understand why it is that the education system is still geared towards pushing some folks, especially Black and Indigenous, Uh, towards uh, lower class employment, uh, cheap labor positions, unskilled labor positions, than it, uh, and, and even to join the military than it is towards fostering uh, the ability for folks to explore sciences or engineering or, or even um, uh, the arts or the humanities or social sciences. Uh, that we are not expected to be part of, let me put it this way, the managerial class of the society, but rather to be poor, cheap labor, because that was exactly the role that was designed for our forebears, and which the managers of the society still have in mind for us. As proof of this, and I got to go back in history, but I'll just mention it quickly, the British North America Act itself Uh, when it talks about Indigenous people, the original Constitution of Canada ranks Indigenous people way down below lighthouses, way down below Sable Island, way down below the post office. So what the Constitution itself says, and the Constitution is the basic law of the country, it says to the federal government, okay, you got to care about Indigenous people, but you know they're less important than the lighthouses are. All right? The Constitution says that. For anybody who wants to read it, that's what it says. So is it any surprise that then the federal government sets up residential schools? Because after all, the, the Constitution says itself that they're not really all that important. So why not set up residential schools and try to assimilate them out of, out of their own uh, cultures and so on and assimilate them into a kind of Uh, uh, would be white Caucasian Christian norm, uh, which is basically uh, 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 a crime against humanity, uh, as as we all should recognize now. 
and in terms of other ethnicities, other people of color, the constitution, the structures of the country have always been about your job is to be cheap labor. When the government of Canada said to, to, to black people in 1955, you are again allowed to come to Canada, they set up a racist, sexist, classist structure. They said, black men, you are welcome to come to Canada from the Caribbean, so long as you are students. Black women, you are welcome to come to Canada from the Caribbean, so long as you are maids, nannies, domestics. Think about that. So the government of Canada, when it says to black people you can come to Canada in 1955, sets up a gender division, which is also related to class. So black women could come to Canada to be workers, poor workers, in white homes, where they could be subject to abuse, by the way. And then black men were allowed to come to Canada as students, middle class, with the understanding that once they achieved their degrees, they would leave and go back to the Caribbean. So Canada has never been about being egalitarian, truly egalitarian, when it comes to uh, black people in particular, indigenous people, other people of color. So when I look at the education system, I do not see that there has been a truly serious effort uh, to say that we want black people or indigenous people to become the managers of the society. You know, if I had to break it down in a very simple, and I will confess, odious, an odious way of dividing Canadians, I would say this, that what we are evolving, what we seem to be evolving is a situation where um, Asian Canadians are, are the business uh, elite, white Canadians remain the political elite, and black and brown Canadians, especially Indigenous, remain the underclass. So if I had to divide the society up in, in this very unfortunately uh, problematic way, that's what I think we are going towards at the moment. Um, and that will only change if and when, um, and I understand Black Lives Matter, I understand Idle No More, but I think that the activism uh, that communities undertake with allies uh, from Asian Canadians, from white Canadians, and, and so on, has to be propagated in such a way that the underlying structures are changed, not just symbols, but underlying structures. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, far more important than, in my opinion, uh, throwing paint on a statue or having a statue removed, no matter how important that might be, I would rather see the Supreme Court become indigenized. I'd rather see uh, three of the justices of the Supreme Court be indigenous Canadians. I'd rather see that. I'd rather see uh, uh, black people appointed to run this and run that and run this and run that. I'd rather see uh, corporate head offices become staffed by people of color in general, black and indigenous people as well, and that, and that there was a transfer of power because ultimately that's what is needed if we're really going to have fundamental change uh, throughout, the, throughout the society. Uh, the exercise of power has to become multicultural. The exercise of power has to become multiracial. The heaping up of wealth has to be multicultural. The heaping up of wealth has to be multiracial. If we're 
ever going to achieve a truly egalitarian society, or else we will end up having symbolic change. The prime minister takes a knee, somebody else stands up and apologizes and cries, and the, and the injustices go on. Because what we have is we have a symbolic solution, which is basically a, not even a Band-Aid. It's, 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 it's basically a kiss on the wound, uh, as if that was going to heal the wound, and it cannot. So if we are going to have real systemic change, there has to be redistribution of wealth, redistribution of power. Uh, for me, that means reparations uh, for Black people, and it means, uh, if not return of land to Indigenous people, it means that Indigenous people should be able to charge rent right now on every single municipality in Canada. And for me, the solution for that is that a portion of property tax uh, should be collected from every municipality and paid to uh, the nearest First Nation uh, that can, uh, that whose land has been settled upon uh, by settlers, in quotation marks. So uh, I know it's a long answer to your, to your question, uh, but I think that that's what we need to have is uh, transfers of power and transfers of wealth without apologies. If somebody wants to say I'm sorry and still send me a, a reparations check, I'll accept it. I'll accept yep. the apology too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 definitely, we definitely agree on that. Uh, we agree on that. Send us a check. That's, that's definitely a way to go. Yeah. go ahead. Um, I have I have just a, two real questions, one sort of joke question left, um, if you have time for three. But um, I did want to ask, because you just referenced, you know, the disparities and the the difficulties that both Black and Indigenous communities have suffered. And I did pick up very specifically on your use of language in the book, calling yourself Afro-Métis specifically. And I wanted to ask why you chose to use that, that those two words put together as opposed to Afro-Indigenous, especially since you're referring to them as Indigenous throughout our conversation here, because I noticed it, I flagged it, and I really wanted to know why that specific wording. Um. I will confess that not everybody is happy with with my creation of that term or my use of that term. Um, but I think it's because there's confusion about what Métis means. And, and before I go any further, I will say that I totally support and endorse the uniqueness of the actual Métis nation, which the government of Canada says uh, consists of Métis peoples from Northern Ontario, essentially Hudson Bay territory, over to British Columbia, with the concentration being on the, in the Prairie provinces, specifically Manitoba to, to Alberta. That's the official government of Canada recognition statement of who is actually part of the Métis Nation. Uh, and, and, uh, and that's all very well and good. And I accept that and I endorse it, no problem. The problem I have is with the idea that the word Métis, which simply is a French word meaning mixed and really mixed race, can somehow be attached to only one group of people in Canada. The government of Canada says that the Métis people are people who evolved through the fur trade and, 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 who's descent, and who are descended from uh, French and Scottish fur traders. Um, now, I have a problem with that definition, not because French and Scottish fur traders did not have relations with Indigenous women and create Métis children, 
But there were also black people who were involved in the fur trade, which was, by the way, the central economic activity of colonial Canada uh, centered on New France, centered on Montreal. Um, and so I find it strange that somehow Quebec is not part of the Métis nation uh, when it was actually the heart of the fur trade. When we say that the fur trade is what helped create Métis people and that it was specific, specifically French and Scottish. Okay, well, what about the black men who were enslaved, who were engagés, who were indentured servants, who paddled those canoes, and who also had relations, I hope consensual, with indigenous women and produced children? So what are their children? Are their children Métis or are they mulatto? Now, somebody please break that down for me. Explain it to me. Because if I am if I'm am to believe that fur, trade, fur trading men having, uh, I hope, consensual relations with indigenous women created children who could then be called Métis simply because they were a mixed race. I can't see how we can disqualify uh, Black fathers and their progeny from also being considered Métis. And if you want to call them Afro-Métis, I'm okay with that. But I disagree with the idea that they cannot be Métis simply because the men involved were not, were not white. That's a racist definition, and I do contest that. The government of Canada also says uh, that that uh, only people involved in the fur trade could produce uh, Métis children. But then there's another trade that was pretty important in colonial Canada, especially in New France, and that's called the slave trade. So uh, 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 a slave trading Frenchman uh, in colonial Quebec produces children with a Métis um, a slave woman and a Black enslaved woman. So the children or child that the master or the overseer, white Frenchman, has with the, with the Pawnee uh, native slave woman is Métis. But the child that the same man or children that the same man has with the Black woman is a mulatto. Keeping in mind that the French themselves used Métis and mulatto interchangeably. If you were one-eighth Black, uh, you were called either quadroon or Métis. The French did that. I didn't make this up. The French did that. So if the French could use Métis to refer to fair-skinned Black people, then that means Black people could be Métis too. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that, that Métis is the end-all and be-all. Everybody should be Métis. No. My argument is that Métis is, does not, cannot belong historically or by dictionary definition to only one group of people. And that the government of Canada's own definition just does not work. And I doubt that it could ever stand up in any serious court challenge. I doubt it. Because historically, it doesn't make any sense. And it can only work as a racist wedge, a racist form of division uh, between uh, uh, Black people and Indigenous people, between Acadians. I mean, one of the craziest things about the official government definition is that even though Acadians had widespread uh, marital relations, conjugal relations with indigenous women, Mi'kmaq women on the East Coast uh, as fishermen and as fur traders. The government of Canada says only fur traders can create Métis children. Magically, you know, I don't know. I, thought, I think God might disagree, but okay, let's say that only fur traders can. That's what they say, right? Um, then you've got Acadians who were fur traders and who were fishermen. Uh, alongside indigenous people right here, in the, well, right there in the Maritimes, uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, actually also um, 
uh, Newfoundland and Pierre Miquelon. Saint Pierre Miquelon, because after Louisbourg was was seized, after after uh, the Acadians were deported and then some returned to New Brunswick, uh, uh, they all had to find shelter. And where they decided to go was to southwestern Newfoundland and to Saint Pierre Miquelon. And so there, Acadians and Mi'kmaq people gathered and and and. Uh, uh, intermingled, uh, uh, intermarried, and so on, and produced children. So, you know, I'd like to ask the government of France, what do you call your children, the, the uh, Mi'kmaq and Acadian children in St. Pierre Miquelon? Are they Métis? Or are they something else? What are they? Right? I'd like to ask the government of Canada to question the government of France of what they call the indigenous people of St. Pierre Miquelon. I bet it's Métis. And so if the, if the Mi'kmaq people of St. Pierre Miquelon uh, and intermix with the Acadians who went to St. Pierre Miquelon, which itself is Basque French, can have probably Métis children. But I can't see why others cannot have Métis children either. And so that means that the government of Canada for its own. And the other thing, the other thing I got to say, I got to I got to say this. It's crazy. It drives me crazy, except for the fact that this is the way racism works. The very same government, I want to say to Métis people in Canada everywhere, the very same government that denied you your rights, that not, that tried to kill your culture, that tried to assimilate your children away from, away from Indigenous ways, you want to trust them now to define who you can be, to define who can, who can make this claim? I say that's apartheid. That's no better than South Africa saying you're colored, you're, you're Asian, you're white. That's no better than them. Why should we let governments tell us who we can be? I don't think governments have any right to do that. I think it's up to the people to decide. The people decide that they're Acadian. The people decide they're Quebecois. The people decide they're Africadian. The people decide. It's not up to the government. The governments are always way behind because the governments do not want to recognize peoples. They don't because they know that when they recognize peoples, then, hey, you know what? There's going to have to be some kind of concession around uh, around um, uh, territory, around culture, around language, around around rights, uh, and so on. And this is what they do not want to see happen. What I'm saying, and I, and I, I say it openly, it's too late. Um, our ancestors made their decisions. When indigenous people, women, came into Black communities in Nova Scotia, uh, marrying Black men or 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 uh, Black women went with indigenous men into their communities. They were already creating Métis peoples. And it didn't matter what the government was thinking in Halifax or in Ottawa or Montreal or Quebec City. It didn't matter. Or Moncton. It didn't matter. The people were making those decisions for themselves. And if they intermarried with white people, that was, that was their decision. It wasn't up to the government. So for the government to come along now and say, well, we'll recognize you because you've got about this much blood and we're not going to recognize that one because they don't have just as much blood and, and so on. You're getting into uh, apartheid science. That's what you're doing. You're getting, getting into apartheid science. I like, I like Stats Canada. I like the way they do it. Just statistics, I can never say that word. Statistics Canada says... Anybody who claims to be indigenous is indigenous. Thank you. That's right. Anybody who claims to be indigenous, believes himself, herself, themselves to be indigenous is. They get counted. Oh, you're indigenous? You're indigenous. That's it. 
And for the government to come along, especially government that has tried to assimilate indigenous people out of existence, to try to say that they can't be white or to say that they are white and they're no longer. This is the same government that said to indigenous women, if you marry somebody white, then your kids lose all their status. That's racism. That's apartheid science. So why should we trust them to tell us who can be Métis or who cannot be Métis? <laughs> it's impossible. I would... I would definitely say that I don't I don't trust the the government to make those decisions, but I also recognize white people who want to take part and take money from marginalized people who will claim to be anything and, and everything to be interesting. And under the guise of that, it becomes extremely unfair and concerning. And so for for me, that's where language becomes extremely important. And I'm really, I like, I loved your answer. Of course, you have a million facts and a bunch of history <laughs> that I will never have the time to fact check all of. Um, but for, for me, I found the language to be extremely interesting. And of course, I think that if oh, Afro-Indigenous, it can be a group of people that definitely exist. There is a definite mix of people because we were all decided to be lesser than given less than white people and basically told, Vatan, do what you want. We're never going to help you. And so you have to be allies amongst yourself and be, procreate amongst yourselves just to get your people to survive. So I believe in that, but I don't appreciate white people who say they're one eighth black so that they can say the N word and play the N card because that's not interesting to me. That's not allyship. That's not my friend. Um, so I have deep seated issues with that specifically. <laughs> you're, you're right, Hillary. <laughs> Thank <that>. you. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. But here's the problem is, is that who gets to police all of that? Who gets to police that? Because the problem is somebody could be one eighth black. And, and not use the N-word and feel very close to his or her or their Black family, Black relatives, and so on. What I'm trying to get at here is this. There has been so much intermixing over centuries. And again, I hope most of it was consensual. Some of it wasn't, but let's presume that most of it was consensual. Um, so how do I get to tell my white-looking one-eighth Black relative that he, she, they can't be Black? Because they're just not Black enough. When, on the other hand, I can have relatives who are very Black in their looks, but whose cultural uptake is distinctly white or European. Um, and, and that's how they choose to be and might actually get upset if I call them Blacks. I'm not Black. I'm a, I'm a Canadian. Don't call me Black. So that's the other side of it. So my feeling is, is that I know this is going to sound too mealy-mouthed for many but my feeling is that we have to not draw hard and fast lines because the problem with that is that there will always be someone or a group of people who will not fit and will suddenly find themselves outside of black community, outside of indigenous community, outside of white community even because they have one drop of this or they don't have enough of drops of that in their blood. I think that, that the understanding has to be cultural. And, and that um, uh, uh, maybe it's time for us to understand, for instance, that there's more than one Métis nation, that there can be other kinds of Métis people, that there's an Acadian Métis nation, there's a Quebecois Métis nation, there's an Afro-Métis nation, and, and, that, and that people can belong to whichever one um, they feel most comfortable being with. And that, that, that is not up to government. 
and and uh, uh, you know governments come after people come into existence first, and then governments come and 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 try to corral them into some kind of of, of cultural bailiwick, uh, which I think really for the most part should be resisted, uh, so that people can can maintain their own borders, so to speak. Because uh, otherwise you get into, again, these, these uh, horrendous situations, such as, I don't mind saying, Quebec, which seems to have in mind who can be really Quebecois and who can't. And, and uh, part of that might be uh, the instructions to some you cannot wear a religious garment uh, and, and hold a job in Quebec society, uh, to be a paid government employee in Quebec, and to wear that religious, uh, religiously sanctioned garb. To me... That's not about secularism. That's about oppression, about trying to uh, trying to force people to not be part of of the society by making them choose between a religious observance, which probably has nothing to do with the job itself, and and their ability to to do that job. And it becomes a, an easy way then of keeping the Quebec civil service, the teaching staff, everything more white than mixed because of that religious instruction. Because it's not going to affect, for the most part, Christians. It's not going to affect them. Uh, you know, they don't have to 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 put on anything special uh, to teach in a classroom uh, necessarily. Um, and and so it's a it's a law that's aimed probably pretty, um, I think, on a, a de facto way, uh, anti-Muslim uh, and anti other religious minorities. And and so. These are the kinds of problems that come up, that crop up when governments start trying to decide who can be what, who's who. I think it's up to the people to make that decision and, and for cultures to make that decision about, about who's in and who's out and not governments. Uh, otherwise, you end up with police state activities, police state decisions. So that's not comforting, I know, uh, but I just don't see any other, any other way around it. So... <laughs> Um, that's okay i will i'll let our listenership mull over that very well said answer um and i'll ask you one last question to segue to the end and a, and a joke question so my okay. my sincere question is and you did mention this very first question was how you ended it sort of within your your 20s and i did pick up on those those hints to who you are now, what you were like as a father, what you were like as a partner to other people later on in your life. And so I do want to ask the sincere question of, will there be a sequel? But I also really want to know, what did you think the KKK was going to say to you <laughs> when you wrote to them? What did you think was going to happen? Oh my golly. And then uh, I'm done. Those are my questions. Okay. I hope there'll be a sequel, Hillary. I hope. Uh, I actually, I'm, I'm just going to hold up the do my advertisement here for the book. Here it is, um, where beauty survived, and it's from Knopf, Canada. And thank you so much for this discussion of, of this book. Now that I've written it, uh, and I did have fun uh, thinking about it, and I try to conceptualize the community and all that. I sure I would. I would love to do a, a sequel. And I think I could do it um, much more in a, in a much briefer way. Uh, now that I've you know covered family as much as I have, I can I talk about other things in a, in a quicker way, maybe. But but um, uh, the uh, uh, joke question, which is actually you know I, I got to ask myself that you know I was eighteen, 
I was a young man. I was officially an adult on the part of uh, the government uh, deciding that that's the age when you officially leave childhood behind. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I think I was just like a typical teen or typical uh, young man in thinking that it was a bit of a lark. Uh, and, and, that, and I was also under the spell of Rocky Jones and Joan Jones and Walter Gordon and all these people who were like preaching black power and black culture to me. And, and I was very much in that mode. You know, I, I was thinking Black Panthers. I was thinking Stokely and Kwame Torre and uh, and and uh, Angela Davis and, and all that. So I thought, you know, the plan, you know, what a, what a bunch of jokers they are. So I typed up a letter, an application letter to join and sent it off in the mail without even really thinking twice about it. Next thing I know, I get this big envelope back, two envelopes back. One coming from Louisiana with all the planned hateful paraphernalia, and the other one coming from uh, uh, New Brunswick. I think it was Sackville, New Brunswick, written by guys. So I want to come and meet you in Halifax. Well, at that point, I stopped laughing. <laughs> at that point, I stopped laughing, uh, and and then I was privy to one of these behind the door meetings that probably go on more than we could ever know, and it was a meeting of all of the major black organizations and leadership. Um, and and uh, uh, the Black United Front at the time, uh, I think maybe the Black Educators Association, uh, the Human Rights Commission, George McCurdy was there, uh, Rocky Jones was there, Hamid Rashid from Buff was there, and a few other uh, people as well. And they were all trying to decide what to do to help me and protect me, and also to try to figure out, well, who is in the Klan in, in the Maritime? Right. So they did a sting operation with the assistance of the RCMP, which is really strange that all of a sudden here are these um, uh, empowered black people getting the assistance of the RCMP, which they were often contesting to infiltrate the, the, the Klan in the Maritimes, which is essentially Sackville, Moncton, New Brunswick, and find out what the membership was and then tell them to, to have nothing to do with me and back off and disappear uh, or face consequences and so on. And that's exactly what happened as far as, as, far as I know. But uh, yeah, what possessed me to do that? It's just because of the fact I was 18 and, and, uh, and not really thinking seriously about what kind of, what, potential harm could have befallen me. Um, and just also also kind of curiosity about well, what would happen if I did this? <laughs> well, you uh, found out. You found out. Yeah, we, we, we definitely found out. So, uh, Professor Clark, we, we really appreciate you being here. Uh, please go ahead and buy his book, Where Beauty Survive. Hopefully this gets done to a series. This could be an amazing TV series. I think, it, I think it definitely can. So, uh, hopefully you get you get that privilege and, and we'll be able to see it for other for generations to come. Uh, we're actually having a contest. So, Hillary, you can go ahead. Yeah. So we are giving away two copies of the book, which I think it's a great if not only is it a great like your story is wonderful, but you mentioned so many people. It, it adds so much value to black history and who were the movers and shakers back then that if you are a young person and you don't know anything about your blackness and you don't know where to start, pick up this book and start Googling because you could have the records on in the background and set the mood and just immerse yourself in that time period. Um, so if you are listening to this episode, uh, the contest ends in four days. And if you leave a review on any of the streaming platforms where we play, this podcast you get entered into a second entry but just like the uh 
Instagram post and all the information on how to enter is there, Black in the Maritimes on Instagram. So go get the book. Uh, definitely, it's a it's not just a memoir for uh, George Elliot Clark, but I think it's a piece of maritime history, maritime yes. Black history. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I definitely think uh, if you want to know about Black maritime history, go get this book. Uh, so yeah, definitely, we thank uh, Professor Clark for being here. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Uh, follow us on Facebook, TikTok, like us on any social media. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to Black in the Maritimes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, again, follow us on Patreon and, you know, leave a comment. So you guys have anything else to say? Professor Clark, thank you so much once again for being on the show. It was great to talk to you and ask you questions and hear from you. Thank you so much, Clinton. Thank you, Dr. Clark, as always. And thank you to the team at Knopf for helping us uh, get some copies and to be able to give away copies. It was a wonderful book. Yeah. It was really, really great. Yeah. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you thank so you much. Miguel. It's great to be Black in the Maritimes. It, it, is great to, it is great to be Black in the Maritimes. <laughs> Thanks to people like you, it's great to be, it's great yeah. to be it. So, all right, guys. Peace. Peace. All right.